Welcome to the Reference Counting Podcast. I'm Taylor Hutchison, joined by my co-host, Andy Collins. Hello. Andy, what's up? What have you been up to this past week? Well, I have a question for you. Oh, okay. What do you think about about the web? Wow, that's a, that's a pretty deep question. I mean, that, that could go in, in a number of directions. Um, if I just had to pick a random random thought, I would say hey, the web is still the future. I think a lot of people have been naysaying the web for for a while now, um, thinking that like, well, everything's going to, to phone apps, native apps, um, but I still see the web as, as, a, as a big bright spot, as a place where I would definitely invest uh, some development resources. Is that what you meant? Is that what you were thinking too? So do you, do you mean um, things like PWAs instead of native apps? So do you mean like it will encroach upon what is currently the native app space? Is that your thoughts? I, yeah, I think it could. Um, I think there is a threat there from like the phone manufacturers and um, the people that make the operating systems to kind of limit the power of PWAs because part of it is is having kind of APIs into some some what we would consider kind of native phone functionality or native um, machine functionality. And I think we've seen a little bit of that limitation from Apple kind of making some of the APIs that we, we thought were, were fine to use uh, kind of off limits. Uh, and, and I think that's partly due to security reasons. I, I do believe them on that front. It just is, is not uh, ideal. So we'll see what kind of happens in the future, but I, I think I definitely am a big believer that PWAs could, could replace or do a lot of the things that um, we consider native apps, um, doing i think there's there needs to be the kind of that bridging the gap for for users who want to go to the app store and say oh this is a native application i'm not using a browser-based application that just looks like it it really needs to have the functionality of like being on the home screen and you know working just like an app in every way um, but it's just written with you know javascript and html yeah, I think there are a lot of challenges, particularly around the app store model and, and about trust mm-hmm. but that, that users have. But also, you know, they have a, even though I don't think most people think about this, I think there's a, a real security argument to be made for the curated app store. Now, of course, I'm more in the Apple space as far as my phone goes, so I'm not real as familiar with uh, Android or other uh, OSs, but I understand that most of them are not quite as curated or are maybe not as good as, as Apple does. And maybe Apple's not as good as they used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there is something to be said for that, that sort of like we can at least have one pass at, at mm-hmm. that. And I, and I guess you can make the case that some of these browser, I mean, building the sandbox of the browser is, you know, some additional security, but then you have to have that balance between features and, and all that and security. Yeah, I I remember I used to think I used to really believe in um, in PhoneGap mm-hmm. uh, that sort of approach to building. You know, PhoneGap was literally supposed to be the gap mm-hmm. between you know right now we have to we're building native apps, but in the future we're going to build HTML5 apps. It's going to be all wonderful, and the browser's going to do everything. Um, that was before I even heard the term PWA when people were talking about PhoneGap, though. I don't know that it didn't exist. And and I feel like, I don't know if, if the, the goalposts move 
or maybe it just never happened or maybe it did and I've missed it. I just, I just don't feel like that is still a thing that people are thinking about. I don't get a sense that like there's a lot of people out there thinking, you know, I'm just going to build this as a web app today, but I can't run it in the browser. I have to run it in this other shell. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I don't I don't see a lot of chatter about PhoneGap anymore. I just haven't looked into that specific technology in a while, but I do see a lot of chatter around uh, Ionic, I think is the name of the, the company and product. Um, so I think there are quite a few that are doing that. I know a couple of big, you know, major corporations, um, that are using that. Uh, and maybe they're just kind of like back of the house apps that we just don't see, um, out there in the world. And maybe it's, it's things that, um, when you're trying to monetize the app, maybe you just write it as a native app or, or, or something and put it in the app store. But, um, Maybe with PWAs, it, that's not really going to be something that the, the public would see. Maybe the same goes th- for like PhoneGap-style applications. Well, I think one of the things is that happened, uh, maybe as a result of PhoneGap and the interest in it, and Ionic is part of that too, because at least in the old days, Ionic used to be something you set on top of Cordova or whatever the open source PhoneGap. I don't remember what that was called, mm-hmm. but... Um, but that was a way, it was kind of a cool way, a way for you to write in web technologies, but to build a native app. But it wasn't really a native app. It was still running in sort of browser context behind the scenes. I think that Ionic is a little different than that now. They've kind of maybe got that React Native style approach. Or something I remember hearing a few years ago, what is it, Native Script? Yeah. Um, Doing something similar there where basically they were, yeah, the, the they were taking kind of your Angular code or, or now I think they support Vue and actually uh, spitting out the, the native code for whatever target platform you're on, not just having the web view inside of a, a container. So you end up in this world where you're building an app and you have JavaScript or TypeScript to be, you know, to drive your logic, but you don't really have HTML. You still have components, mm. but you have other things than HTML. Is that is that how it works? Yeah, I, I haven't done anything with NativeScript myself, but I do want to say there was a kind of like XAML-like language um, that you would use that, that really wasn't HTML. Uh, maybe I'm getting into the, the danger zone of saying stuff that I don't understand, but... Um, yeah, I would say that there is not that HTML layer. There was some other thing that could be parsed by those tools and, and spit out the kind of native component structure of if you were targeting iOS or Android, uh, it could figure out what to put out. Well, you're supposed to say things. <laughs> you, you don't have to actually know the things that you're saying for sure. Sure. Right? I mean, I, I think we started this podcast with that in mind, that we would just say things and some of them would be true. And some of them will be things maybe we wish were true or we, we thought were true in 2011. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. That's why we have listeners to let us know when we're wrong. Yes. And, and if any listener wants to comment on this, uh, you can get to us at refcountpodcast on Twitter or refcountpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know what we got wrong. There you go. I, I totally forgot we had that email address. But one of the things I think is cool about, about all of that, about building even native apps with this web technology is maybe, you know, HTML is some kind of markup language. It, it's whatever it's replaceable, but you can use, um, 
the language that you that you like or you're familiar with. So people can use JavaScript, people can use TypeScript to to build like a wide variety of things. It sort of it opens up that world of native apps when you don't really even have to, you know, you don't have to make that bet on the web. I guess if you're not comfortable with that, but you can still use your you know your tool set. And then you can use something like Angular, so not just TypeScript, but you can actually use the framework um, or something like React Native or whatever, I guess, the Ionic for Vue or anything like that. So you can still use those frameworks and those those tools and the tool chain and all that stuff and still and produce something that will be performant and have access to all the features of the phone. Yeah, I think that was probably one of the, the major downsides of those style of applications maybe, you know, five years ago was the the performance that you could always tell or almost always tell, hey, this this app is like a web view type app. Um, and it would sometimes chew through a lot of battery more so than the native applications. I'm not sure if the technology has gotten better. I assume it has. Or if phones have gotten more powerful and they just have better batteries and they're able to control that stuff a little bit better. Um, I'd be curious to know, maybe both are true, uh, but how the kind of performance curve has gone with that technology in the last five years. So you're right now, uh, at least to a large degree, a, a TypeScript Angular developer. Would you say that's true? I do spend a considerable amount of time doing that stuff when, I mean, that's the only thing I use, um, when I'm doing spa type work, um, I definitely have fallen into the trap of thinking that Angular is the right tool for a lot of different things when I could have gotten away with, with something much simpler. But yes, I would say that that's who I am when it comes to uh, web-based applications. Yeah, I guess I started this questioning about the web and then somehow we got started talking about mo- uh, native apps that were built in web technologies. But to bring it back around to the web, that is what you're doing, right? You're building single-page apps in, in Angular and you just said, uh, well, first of all, I am somewhat less familiar with Angular than you. I certainly have never written any production code in the current flavor of Angular, in the, the old ancient Angular JS. I've done a, quite a bit of work in the old days um, and, and really liked it, actually, uh, at least at the time relative to what I'd used in the past. Uh, but I, I don't know much about Angular as it stands today. I I do some React work and feel fairly comfortable as a uh, intermediate level, maybe React developer. Maybe what is what is what is between novice and intermediate? Somewhere in there, <laughs> journeyman. Um, journeyman yeah. develop React developer. Yeah. Um, so I can I can kind of speak to that, but I'm, I'm curious about Angular because I, I did work for a company bef- in my previous job before where I am now. Uh, and we were doing React. I walked in, they were already doing React. And somewhere partway through the project we were working on, we all looked at each other and we're like, we're all C-sharp developers. We really like sort of strongly typed languages. We like, we sort of like this batteries included thing that .NET gives mm-hmm. you. And, like, and, and so we just sort of looked around and why did we pick React? <laughs> Maybe we should have picked Angular. It might've been a better fit, but we were sort of already down the road. Uh, and we spent some time trying to figure out how to get type, you know, switch out the JavaScript for TypeScript. And I think it's actually better now. This was a couple of years ago. I think it's a little bit better to do React and TypeScript now. Uh, but at the time, it just seemed verbose and painful and certainly not uh, what React was built, you know, with that in mind. 
Um, and these days, like you can actually, the, the, the primary tool for generating a React app will actually build you a TypeScript, you know, kind of scaffold you out a TypeScript app, uh, just just as easy as JavaScript. So it's a different world now, but but it just it clearly was not the you know the thought process of the React team when they went with TypeScript. So anyway, all that to say, I'm curious about Angular um, as somebody who does it all the time. And you said something just that I thought was a little telling, or at least something I want to dig into a little bit, that something along the lines of there. The, TypeScript or Angular can be a complicated setup, like just to get you started. Is there a lot of work to do to get started on building an Angular app? I think there's a there's a curve there. Um, so the Angular team has done a fantastic job with the CLI. I think we need to probably give a shout out to Ember JS and their CLI because they really I feel like pioneered that approach. Um, I don't know too many people using Ember.js anymore, but um, yeah, that style of, hey, there's one tool, the, the blessed tool, this is the way that you should be creating your Angular uh, applications or libraries, um, has really made a lot of developers' lives easier. So just starting a project is very easy. So the curve is, or, you know, the, the difficulty level is very low for the initial step. And then I think it's like, okay, well now I want to maybe have some components and I want to um, hit an API with some HTTP service and maybe there's a configuration service. And so the curve gets uh, pretty high for the next step, but that's all stuff you're going to do just one time. After you've done all your setup with your services and, and all that stuff, then it becomes very easy to rapidly iterate and like create new components and break down existing components into smaller components. Uh, so I'd say that there's like little setup, a lot of setup, and then back to little setup again. And that tool, the, the, the CLI actually generates everything. So again, I'm coming from a React standpoint. You use create React app, you build your app, and then you're done with that tool. You don't touch it again until you make your next app. It, it's more than just creating everything. So yes, it will generate the initial kind of bundle and setup, and then you'll continue to use it for creating your components and services and other little parts of the uh, Angular application. Um, it will modify existing files. So if you needed to create a component but register it with the module that it's in, it'll it'll modify that module file for you. So you don't need to do any of that. It'll also handle upgrades. So there's an uh, ng upgrade kind of feature where uh, the next version comes out. Well, you can just uh, tell it to update and it will actually, if a new feature is introduced or, or Maybe um, if a feature has been deprecated or removed, it will actually scan through your code. And if there's any auto fixes for those those features that are broken now, it'll actually apply those auto fixes for you. So it's it's a pretty handy tool. It stays with you. Uh, it's it's what you use to build the source. It's what you use to kind of serve it up uh, in development mode. So it, it really is the all-purpose tool, the companion for the Angular developer. I guess I wasn't aware that um, React. I'm gonna try to not like color my response uh, about uh, React. Wait, no, you're supposed. We're supposed <laughs> to be controversial. Uh, remember? Yeah, I guess that's true. I don't have a very pleasant view of React, uh, but I say that. I'm gonna, the caveat is I've never been a professional React developer. I've just experimented with it on my own, you know, as a hobby type thing. Um, 
I did not know that the create react app though was just a, a one-time kind of thing. I thought that it would, it had other facilities to kind of help you um, along the way. So that's kind of surprising for me to hear. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's not, it's, I want to say it's not that complicated when you want to build a new component because essentially all components, there's not this concept of services or other kind of libraries or whatever that you would bring in. Mm -hmm. Um, that, that I think at least the old, and you mentioned it a second ago, but the old Angular had the services and factories and things that I've forgotten about, uh, filters and all kinds of stuff like that, mm -hmm. right? React doesn't have mm -hmm. that. So it's really just components all the way down and you write your own functions. That being said, uh, the current version of React, there's a concept called hooks, mm -hmm. which is sort of like a fancy function that sort of has a memory between renders or something like that is basically what a hook is. Um, and so I think that the React team is thinking, well, there's not that much heavy lifting you have to do to build a component or to do something like this. So there's not a lot of motivation to do that. And it always seemed to me like there, if you were to manually wire up a bunch of stuff in Angular, you would be doing a lot of work. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? I mean, is that, I want, I want to get to the, I want to get to the dark side of it. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, why is it, why is it hard? Yeah, I think it is, it would be, um, not as much fun to manually create the files because by default, every component is going to have four files. Uh, you're going to have the TypeScript component. You're going to have the HTML template of that component. You're going to have the CSS for that component. And then you're going to have a test for that component. Now you could, um, well, I don't know how you would have the test in the file, but you could have all three of those other things in one file, right? You could have your template in line, right, with your TypeScript and your CSS in that same file. So there's no reason why you have to have it separated out. Now, I believe it's a best practice, and it makes things a lot easier to have the CSS be in one area and the JavaScript or TypeScript to be in another area. Well, that's kind of like Vue. I've, I've seen a little bit of Vue lately. So Vue, actually, their default is to put the template, the the JavaScript or TypeScript and the CSS all in the same file in the .view file or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, man, that sounds, that seems pretty good to me. It's like a, the thing that React does where it mixes the markup and the JavaScript. I can, like, it took me a long time to get used to that. And I, I feel like if it, it's not necessarily my favorite way to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I kind of like being able to see everything in one spot. To be honest. Yeah, I think there is an argument to be made for it in that if you have so much HTML and CSS um, that it, it becomes hard to read, then your component might be too big or trying to do too many things. You might need to break your component up into multiple components. So maybe it kind of encourages you to keep it slim and small. Um, otherwise, it becomes hard to read or, or kind of difficult to wield. Yeah, I mean, I can I can see the case so like from a React perspective. You put it all in one spot, then you might be more encouraged. But I, having been super guilty of making gigantic components, I can tell you that it is also possible to look past that. <laughs> yeah, not not worry about it. I do prefer the kind of multi-file approach, um, but maybe that's just because I've just gotten used to it. Uh, it does seem like. So someone who's not used to that model coming in, you would just think, oh my gosh, Angular has so many files. Now they're all going to be hidden inside their own folders, kind of encapsulated in the folder system. Um, but yeah, you could maybe get overwhelmed or think, why is this necessary? Well, it's not necessary, but um, that is the kind of practice that the community has landed on.
I was so in, in sort of a preparation because I had this idea that I was going to ask you about Angular and, uh, and TypeScript or whatever. Um, in preparation for that, I started looking up. I don't know if you've ever seen the site, the um, what's it called? The, the State of JS? Mm, no, I haven't heard of that. State of JavaScript. Yeah, you should definitely check it out. It's pretty cool. It's, it's some surveys and uh, they have data and graphs. And so I assume it's all true and accurate. <laughs> Scientific. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are pictures on there. There's some animations. That's cool. So it's all very, you know, eye-catching and so therefore trustworthy. Um, and I tell you, if you look at, at some of these, uh, look at some of these numbers for Angular, they're starting to, they're starting to dip. Mm. Now, some of them are starting to dip because I think we are now going through in the past couple of years, we're starting to go through a, another wave of like a lot of JavaScript frameworks showing mm-hmm. up. So in the kind of 2010 to 2014 time frame, it was kind of like, JavaScript framework over JavaScript framework every you know every other day, and that's sort of an old tired joke that people have been telling for a while. But actually, for a few years, at least in the middle part, you know, of the last decade, I think that wasn't really true. But we're starting; they're starting to to pop back up again. Mm. There are like nine frameworks that are listed here uh, that that people are talking about, and so there's a couple of them that I've heard of. Or you know, Angular and Vue and React. Svelte is becoming really interested mm-hmm. or popular, or maybe popular is not the right word. They talk here about uh, people showing interest in it. You know? Yeah, uh, Ember's still on here, but it's it's at the bottom, <laughs> and the second from the bottom is Angular. Yeah, I. So I hate to break it to you. Well, I think that I'd be interested where the the source of this data is coming from. Um, I, I wonder if they're like scanning GitHub. Or something like that to define these projects because I think that Angular is much more popular in the kind of enterprise space. The, the, the dark matter developer is a little bit more interested in Angular than they are some of these other frameworks that kind of have the the buzz on Twitter or, or whatever. Um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, th- I think that that is part of the reason why Angular is maybe seen as less popular it's just because not a lot of people talk about it because the people who use it just classically don't talk about their technology. Same reason why C Sharp and ASP.NET is incredibly popular in the enterprise, but you just don't see the same level of love out on uh, on the web for it. That's kind of the sense I've got that it's, it is an enterprise sort of technology and it's you know, very explicitly designed for that, right? Yeah, I think what you mentioned at the top of uh, saying about your previous company that like people want the batteries included option, um, and this and Angular is definitely that. Not to say there's other frameworks that are not that way, but when you compare it to React, where you have to compose React with other libraries in, your, in order to build like a full featured web application, um, that's not what Angular is. Angular is they give you everything you basically need and the stuff that you might want to layer on top of that, maybe like a UI framework like material is very easy to get. And it all kind of seamlessly works together. It's designed that way. And it's been blessed to work that way. So I, I don't know. I, I, that, that statistic that are that um, position on that chart doesn't worry me. I think angular has found its place. I think maybe for the last couple of years or, or maybe two or three years ago, they were trying to chase some of the things that React was doing or some of these other frameworks were doing. Um, 
but I feel like they have they found their vision, they found their place, they know what they're doing now. Um, they're focusing on certain things, and it's not trying to chase the latest fad, uh, which I think is you know maybe part of the reason why we're seeing a new wave of frameworks is there's this idea that's very popular right now, like micro front ends. Have you seen anything about this or had any experience with the like micro front end culture? I have certainly heard about that, but I don't really feel like I know enough about it to, to speak intelligently. Yeah. I, I certainly don't know enough to speak intelligently about a lot of things, but I will attempt anyway. Um, well, that's a good point. I forgot I was I wasn't supposed to let that stop. <laughs> yeah, me. don't we can't let that stop us. Um, I think the micro front end idea, in a lot of ways, is the same thing that the microservice like API approach uh, had, which is you have various teams. They all have their different strengths, and maybe they all have their different preferences for language. So you compose. All these microservices, maybe some are written in Go or Rust or C Sharp or Node or something like that, and they all communicate over HTTP, so it doesn't really matter internally what they're doing or how they're written. And I believe the idea is that, okay, you're going to compose a ap- application that's made of many parts, and they have a way to communicate but there's a boundary there and this part of the page is written in view. This part of the page is written in Svelte and this part of the page is written in react. And as insane as that might sound to some people, it's possible. Um, so I, I think that is kind of the vision of the micro front end, uh, or, the, or maybe vision is the wrong word, but that's kind of the way that it, it works. Yeah. I have heard, I, I'm not sure that I've actually heard people talk about, composing their front ends in different frameworks, I guess that could be done if you're going from page to page. Basically the idea is I understand it is like there's a build process that wraps it all together in the end. So, you know, just like microservices can be independent of each other and communicate with each other. But in the end, your front end of your web app needs to be in the single browser. So there is still some sort of process that's kind of unique to a micro front end that, that builds it all and puts it all in one thing, but you can still work independently. And I guess if you're in a world where you're doing component based development, that makes a little bit of sense. Um, but it, it's sort of like this component speaks to this microservice or these microservices and this component speaks to other ones, but they're on the same page. Maybe they communicate with events or something like that, maybe to one another mm. on the page. Um, but the idea of doing it in, multiple languages and frameworks that that sounds like a bad idea actually yeah that's all that just sounds i don't think you should do that so well don't recommend i I don't think you should do that either and and maybe that's not the the way that it's actually being implemented i think that's like a a promise of it that it it could do that or let's say you just needed to build like a calendar widget for your application your application is already written in react but you're your widget team uses Svelte or something like that. Um, so you can just build that component and you're able to package it up in a way that it's sort of self-contained. So you can drop it into the, the HTML and say, hey, here's the script tag, here's the component, and the script tag will knows everything to do and it'll find the component and create your, your calendar widget for you. And now you're kind of mixing 
uh, front end frameworks. Maybe that works for people. You know, that might work for the big airline or car companies that have hundreds of developers trying to build out their their public website. Um, it's just maybe it's just too hard to get all the teams aligned on a on the same language because of different backgrounds or something like that. That could that could make sense for somebody, but for the kind of small team working on the small to medium sized web application, uh, I feel like Angular. I, I I actually think it works great for even large applications, but I think Angular and kind of keeping it as one language or one framework rather. Uh, makes the most sense to me, but that maybe that's just the type of problems I'm trying to solve. This whole idea that Angular is is an enterprise thing uh, tool and something that you said earlier, dark matter developers. So this idea that these are people, what is it that that's a Scott Hanselman thing, right? So like dark matter is this stuff that we've never seen or interacted with, but we know it's there. So like a dark matter developer is, you know, they're there, there's code being written. You can see the evidence of their existence, uh, but they never go to conferences or, or even listen to podcasts. So probably not, we're not actually talking to them. Um, uh, they, they don't go to meetups and things like that. They just, you know, they're sort of like, um, you know, maybe journey, journey people, developers or whatever, like that. They're, they're just doing the, the work a day sort of developers. They go home, you know, the middle yard or whatever. Um, but the idea that Angular is popular amongst that group that you can never really measure, or I don't know how you measure it. I mean, I guess Microsoft has sort of been able to measure it over the years because they've been selling licenses, and so they can tell how many licenses of Visual Studio they've sold. Uh, but I don't know how Google would measure something like that. Um, anyway, that's, that's not my question. My question to you is, for those people, those dark matter developers, the people who are in the Microsoft space at least, are those people going to go to Blazor now? Is it going to be Bla- is Blazor going to start competing then? Is, so React isn't competing, but is something else going to do that with Angular? Yeah, and you and I have have had our differences on Blazor. You know, a difference of opinion on Blazor. Um, I think yes, that is ultimately what's going to happen. I think that there are lots of you know .NET development shops out there who have been building their web applications, uh, server-side rendered web applications, you know, MVC or, or whatever, uh, for a while, and they never made the, the leap to JavaScript. They just, uh, you know, were working on products that worked well, they didn't need to change, but now maybe the customer expectation of the, the kind of spa experience uh, where the whole page doesn't re-render or whatever, you know, whatever it is, uh, just the march of time and the interest of the technology and how it works and the desire to be cool or whatever uh, is going to force them in a way to to upgrade their technology. And I think for the, for the bulk of them, it will be server-side Blazor or it will be Blazor wrapped uh, uh, in Electron or some other web view type thing. Uh, but yeah, I think I see that as being the future. I don't know, man. I'm not, you know, I used to believe in these arguments about technology being dated and people moving on. Uh, and I have not believed that in a while. Just literally today, I was browsing Pluralsight, the, the online training, and I saw a new course that is entitled 
Learning COBOL with VS Code. With VS Code. I saw that too. I saw that and I couldn't believe yeah. it. Um, I think that's hilarious. They've been, they've actually, Pluralsight has been recently posting a lot of articles that are kind of harkening back to older technologies. They've had a whole series on the C language recently and like memory allocation in C for beginners. <laughs> it just makes me laugh. I mean, I don't know. C is one of those, C is kind of its own special thing. Like, I mean, there's still lots of reason to use C. You know, COBOL though, nobody, I mean, people aren't, are people building new systems in COBOL? I mean, there's certainly a ton of it out there and you got to maintain it. And, and I've worked for government before, so I know for sure that there's a lot of COBOL out there and banks and insurance companies and governments. And there, you know, if you want to go out there and make some money, I'm sure you could, like as people retire and, and go even, you know, die, basically, mm-hmm. then um, there's job openings for that. And I think that's going to be true for web forms. You know, you mentioned that these people have these server-side rendered apps, and a lot of there's a lot of web forms out there in the world. And and as far as anybody's concerned, they're working, they're they're doing fine, and you can keep tacking on things to them as you go along. Uh, and Microsoft, Microsoft's not quite as um, passionate about backwards compatibility as like an IBM mainframe. But uh, they still support it. They're still gonna, you know, keep going with those things. So I, I don't know that I don't. I don't really buy this argument that says that the technology is gonna force people to move forward. Uh, your argument that maybe eventually that user demand will, or this idea that people uh, will be used to using software in their regular life that is easy to use and friendly and kind of doesn't do the full page refresh. And then they go to work and they use this old stuff that's terrible. Um, you know, my experience with that is what they end up doing in that case is they switch to using Excel for everything. (laughs) Yeah. There might be a case to be made for that, to do some new technology. And I guess what you're saying is, and what I was sort of getting at earlier was, Maybe they would have gone to Angular, those teams, to replace those things. And now maybe they will look uh, at Blazor, particularly those people doing web forms or something today. Maybe they're, they're, they're going to skip it. So maybe, they're, maybe Blazor won't take any market share away from Angular, but, but the, play, the place where Angular could grow, might, you know, that, that room might, that might shrink a little bit mm. there, that space. Is that is that uh, sound right to you, or do you feel good? What do you feel? Yeah, about? I can see that argument. Um, well, on the plural site thing, I think that uh, I'm sure they're just responding to to customer requests, right? Like they didn't just say, "Hey, I, I know COBOL. Like I'm going to put this out there." I'm sure people said, "Hey, we have people that need to learn COBOL because we're having to maintain these things." So I think those market pressures on plural site to produce those courses or on these um, development shops. Uh, that will be the main driver. It's just uh, they want to make money. They want to stay relevant. I, I kind of, dude. I got to tell you, if you, I really think everyone out there should go and look for this course <laughs> um, because the guy, the picture of the guy on the front, he is the happiest looking guy I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, because he's probably he rolling in money. Thr- yeah, he's he is. He just every you know his mattress is made a hundred dollars or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's the language I hear. Uh, if you know it, you can make quite a bit. So um, I kind of wonder about this this model we were just kind of talking about where some of your website is written in one technology and another is written in another. Um, so like could the web forms and the server-side blazer sort of coexist? Is there a way? I think that might be difficult, but like is the ASP.NET MVC stuff could that be 
um, kind of kept as it is or moved to ASP.NET Core. But really, the logic and all that stuff could remain untouched. Um, but then there's other parts of your application now. You know, maybe it's the admin portal or maybe it's like this new part of the site and they they begin work on that with this new set of technologies. I wonder maybe that's the model a lot of people would probably end up going down. It's like not rewriting the whole thing, but just a part of it in the new stuff. Well, that's interesting that you sort of talked about maybe web forms and then you backed off because Blazor only works in .NET Core, .NET 5 or whatever, mm-hmm. right? So you can't do web yeah, forms. Yeah, you can't do web forms. Um, at least not yet. I know they keep saying, I know they keep saying we're not going to, you know, web forms is like tied to the old framework. Um, I just wonder if we're not going to see something in the future because there is so much stuff written in web forms. Uh, see, that sounds to me like a hot take that you've got going there. <laughs> yes. Uh, you heard it here first. .NET 7 web forms is coming to .NET 7. They're still, they've, they're almost got it. Just a few more tweaks, uh, the performance will be will be back, and you know we won't have this IIS dependency. I I I think that there's surely teams at Microsoft that are regularly revisiting whether or not they can they can port web forms, mm. just because of what we said. It's so it's so popular. There's so much stuff written in it that nobody nobody wants to touch. And nobody has touched since like 2006 or whatever. Nobody knows where the code is <laughs> or, you know, or, you know, nobody who worked there, who built it is still there. Anybody who did has forgotten all about it anyway. So uh, Microsoft in their desire to get, you know, clearly, despite what they say, their desire to get people off of the .NET framework, they've, they've got to pour web, web forms at some point. And maybe, you know, I have heard rumors of like, well, we can migrate, you know, web forms to Blazor. So Blazor can be something that you, you know, you rewrite your app in Blazor, but it'll be so close that it'll be fine. You won't have to worry about it. But I don't buy that. I don't buy that for a minute. I think think there could be, you know, when that happens, there might be some people who build part of their app in Blazor, you know, in .NET 7. I guess um, I... It just seems impressive to me that Blazor has gotten as far as it has. It it originally to me, and all credit to that Steve Sanderson guy, um, it just seemed like a technology that was really cool that would never go anywhere or was never going to get official billing. And, and now here it is, like the star of the show, so to speak, uh, for the web stuff. Um, so I don't know. I think when you do have the full backing of Microsoft, uh, for, for a couple of iterations, that's pretty powerful. That could, they could put the resources to make it appealing for all those people that are stuck in the web forms NBC world. It's interesting though, but I think you're, I think we're talking about those dark matter developers again. We're not talking about the people who are out there at conferences or writing blog posts or just out there in the world necessarily. You know, there's no, like, people evangelizing about Blazor. I mean, there are people right now doing it, but I just don't I don't see that as being, like, the cool, hip thing, mm. you know? Yeah. The way WebAssembly generally kind of is, but Blazor, again, it feels like this sort of technology that Microsoft is targeting towards, you know, enterprises. Uh, they know very well that it's it's... You know, their, their hope is that it's boring, right? And that it's just something that you can do to get work done, which is, there's nothing wrong with that, mm-hmm. right? But I just, I, I feel like the thing that, the thing that I'm 
skeptical about is that they're trying to sell it or that it will be some major sea change. Like I, I don't see, I see it as big, maybe a, again, the tool that people are going to use to get work done, but that it's not going to bring Microsoft to the forefront of like web developers and generally, you know, it's not going to replace um, the JavaScript frameworks that are, that are cool and hip that people are using. I mean, I don't think it's going to really do it, you know, put a dent in even Java web development, actually, but particularly any of the kind of fancy micro frameworks or whatever people are doing or node development or people doing Python apps. Um, I, I just, I don't, I don't see that happening. And so I'm skeptical that, that it is all the things that Microsoft wants to pretend that it's going to be. And I also feel like they were trying for a while to make .NET cool, to to put .NET in that space where it was as cool and hip as the other people, as the other technology. And I think it is. I think dot, you know, the .NET 5 or .NET Core Plus or whatever <laughs> is, um, it is that. And it has a lot of potential to be that. Um, partly because, you know, runs on Mac, runs on Linux and does that sort of thing. I just, but I, I fear that they're going to revert back to their, their old ways of like having this sort of walled garden of development that only Microsoft people know what it is to do this Microsoft stuff. And some of that is like, there's no standards compliance stuff. We're not, we're not really working with anyone else. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I've just, just been burned in the past mm -hmm. by the old ways and, and things are actually different now and I shouldn't worry so much, but I'm, I'm skeptical about Blazor as being a, great technology and i'm also skeptical that it, it's a sign that microsoft is kind of circling the wagons and reverting back to their old ways yeah how about that <laughs> circle the wagons um it could be i de i think that there's definitely some potential i don't think that you're wrong or anything like that i just um you know, sometimes companies need to continuously produce, right? They need to come up with new things or like the market will see them as like dull and boring and, um, well, they had, they're out of ideas. Uh, so maybe there's a little bit of that, like, oh, we have to have something, right? And that's kind of how we get server-side Blazor. Um, and okay, client-side Blazor is actually cool from a technology perspective. It, I personally find it pretty amazing that, that it works. I uh, completely agree. I think it is cool. I actually think server side is kind of cool, but it's not the kind of thing that I'll feel compelled to use. Right. But client side is cool. And I think that um, there, there's some rumors about, and maybe there's more than rumors, about a, an electron replacement mm -hmm. that uses Blazor, mm -hmm. basically. I think that is very cool. I think that could be really interesting yeah. and, and, a and potentially a productive way to build apps. I think it's going to be boring and niche, but I think it could be interesting and useful. Well, yeah, I mean, this may be circling back to where we began, like with the web. Um, yeah, I, I would love to know what's up with WPF and WinForms and what's the kind of future for client, desktop client applications and is there a future for that stuff and what's going on with Windows and, you know, there's all kinds of applications. But if you were wanting to target multiple operating systems, um, I think a lot of people look to, to Electron now. Electron has some drawbacks in terms of performance and memory and, and things like that, but it's a pretty cool tool. Could there be something similar uh, 
that's running Blazor on the inside, but it's wrapped in this kind of highly performant web view. Yeah, I've seen a lot of rumors around that, and I think that would be kind of interesting. Uh, it really is interesting. As a as a Linux user in my day-to-day life, um, I think that I, I can see that Electron has benefited me quite a bit. Hmm. I mean, several apps that I use, VS Code, uh, Slack, I have to use Teams once in a while. These are tools that would not exist on Linux if it wasn't for Electron. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just not enough. There's not enough market there to to build a Linux version unless it's really easy to do. Mm-hmm. You know, so I really like that, and I think you know something that had a better mem- you know memory story and maybe better performance would be great. I would love to see something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I would want to know. Um, well, I guess so. Microsoft sort of owns Electron now, or uh, well, they bought GitHub. GitHub owned Electron, even though I think it's open source, correct? It, yeah, it yeah. is. It's part of, but Atom is too. And all their all their things are open source. But I don't know how. Actually, I don't know if it's really actively contributed by people outside of GitHub. I yeah, so I wonder what the part of Electron that makes it less performant is. It run it is it the the node uh, element of it, or or just like the whole <laughs> Chromium thing. Um, would would there be any use to kind of trying to make Electron more performant, or do they need to split off and do their own thing to, to kind of gain that that level of performance they might be looking for? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the worst thing about Electron is the memory footprint, I would say, more than the, the performance. Um, I mean, VS Code performs really well, but, you know, it's got a, it's got a big memory footprint. There seems to be a lot of processes that spin up. Yeah, I, I think guess, maybe as far as performance VS goes. Code is amazing and does perform very well, but I think that's because they have a just an amazing team that that works on it. Um, I think my fear is like if if you're not Microsoft, can you build an Electron app that's still performant? Like it's probably pretty easy uh, to put everything in the same process and really bog it down unless you're you know, creating child processes or using service workers or whatever, uh, or web workers to, to efficiently process your information. Um, I think it's really easy to make an inefficient electron application. So that's where I wonder if like, could they do something where, I don't know that, that it's easy on the, the lay developer to, to build these things. One of the, the things I do like about sort of the Microsoft ecosystem or the community around Microsoft is this this sort of catchphrase of falling into the pit of success. Hmm. I wish I remember like what Microsoft person started saying that several years ago. But it's this idea of like you can't help but but be successful. And I do think that that is something that they do well with their tooling. Um, like you can, you're going to get something done. That doesn't mean it's going to be great. Like, you know, web forms, again, I'll come back to that web forms. This is not a hot take. This is just a fact. Web forms is terrible. <laughs> can I say that? Is that all right? Did I say that it is. Yeah. Terrible. I think hindsight has taught us um, that that, that was a mistake. <laughs> they, it was too soon. Didn't have the right, uh, philosophy. Didn't think all the way through. The fact that you can get stuff done in web forms is not evidence that it's not terrible. <laughs> right. But you can get, you know, you can get stuff done. And Microsoft does make it, like, easy in their tool. And they traditionally have done that to make to make it possible for developers with maybe not a lot of experience to build productive applications. 
And so that would be great. Like if they, if they took on Electron or replaced it with this Blazor thing or did something else to make it easier to build, you know, apps that didn't take, you know, several gigs of memory or whatever, just to start up, <laughs> spun up. I mean, or maybe you would want to spin up more multiple processes instead of, like you said, bloating one big process or, or something like that. Um, I, can, I can see Microsoft doing that. I can see them, I don't know, turning turning their attention to something that way. Specifically since they seem to have bought into Electron as a framework mm-hmm. for developing. You know, Maybe they take and make a Blazor flavor of Electron, and, and in so doing, they make Electron a better tool for even JavaScript developers. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, this maybe is a topic for a completely uh, other podcast, but um, I've often wondered about the ability of the framework or the language that we use to detect where kind of sub-processes or threads should be uh, without the developer having to explicitly state, hey, do this on another thread, uh, kind of that parallelization, that op- you know, that automatic parallelization of our applications I wonder if there's any opportunity to kind of do that uh, so that the developer doesn't have to think very hard. It always comes back to you and your AI code <laughs> Yes, I know. It's I, I keep on finding a way to introduce it into every podcast. Well, I don't know exactly what the topic of this episode was. I think we briefly danced around. Uh, I mean, we, we, we started with the web. We went to Angular. We uh, <laughs> had some hot takes about various Microsoft technologies um, so yeah, we, th- there's probably a thread. I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out. Um, we didn't even get to one of the, uh, one of the questions that I was going to ask you, which was, um, kind of your journey. What, what, how did you, I know you've worked with the web for a while, but, but in terms of front end, uh, frameworks, what was your journey? I'm sure that in future episodes, we can talk more de- in depth about it, but I'll, you know, I can speak to it a little bit. Um, for, for front end, you know, the first half of my career, so maybe the first 10 years of my career, I, I was doing web development, but in those days we called, you know, basically server side rendering, we called those web developers. Mm -hmm. And so sometime in the past decade that the term web developer changed, which is sort of interesting. Did it? I guess I'm Um, just, I'm just hearing about this. I feel like a, a PHP developer is still a web developer. This is, this is new to me. Well, I th- I feel like that too, but I feel like a lot of times, you know, when I see people on Twitter or I, I hear people discussing web development, it implies to at least the young folks mm. um, that that is a front-end development. Mm. The web development enterprise implies front-end. Okay. But it, it hasn't always because there was a long time of the web. I mean... The majority of the history of the web, at least half of the lifetime of the web, um, starting somewhere in the early mid '90s, um, that the front end wasn't really uh, that amiable. It wasn't really that good to work in. It wasn't a place where you could really get a lot done. I mean, some people who are really determined could, mm-hmm. but most people couldn't. And so, server side rendering was what you did. The, you ran your code on the back end, right? And then when, you know, Firefox and Chrome sort of take, you know, there's a whole history of the browser wars or whatever. And so basically I give Chrome a lot of credit for bringing 
web standards back to the forefront and, and Firefox as well. But I think, you know, maybe without Chrome, it wouldn't have Yeah, been. I, there's a really interesting thing we should talk about sometime, which is, um, so Knockout JS, Backbone JS, and Angular JS, and um, Sprout Core. I think it. I think that's what uh, Ember JS was before it was Ember JS. Those all came out in 2010. Uh, three of those came out in the same in October. I think Knockout was first in like June or July or something like that. But those all came out in 2010. Chrome came out in the last part of 2008. And I think those two things are directly related. I agree. I 100% agree. And I think the the interest that Microsoft had in like, nah, maybe we should actually pay attention to standards. Um, and the Firefox people, Mozilla people have been saying that for years already. And so finally somebody listened to them. Um, or maybe they didn't listen to them, but they at least invited them to the table. Um, those things made the web... As, at least as much as jQuery did. jQuery was an amazing tool right, to say. Yeah. But really it was the standardization of stuff that made the web a place where you could actually get work done. And so for me, I, I have a memory of, of writing some crazy JavaScript in a web forms um, app that was like injected it was like I was literally writing JavaScript in a string that was then injected in as a like a custom control or user control, whatever those things were called. Anyway, I, I'm having weird JavaScript in, in Webforms flashbacks. But I, I was doing jQuery a lot in those days, in the Webforms days. Uh, but that was all for validation and... You know, we use the uh, jQuery validator library that you put little, you just data tags or whatever on things and it did some things for you. You dropped in like a widget kind of, was, when you mentioned earlier about the idea of having these micro frameworks and dropping in a calendar widget, all I could think about was like jQuery oh, UI. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, definitely, I had plenty of jQuery UI, um, which when it was, when it came out was amazing. It was incredible in my opinion. Um, but yeah, those are those are the old days. Yeah, I think that jQuery, you know, because jQuery it, to some people has become a little bit of a joke because it's like, oh, you're still using jQuery, you shouldn't, mm -hmm. you know, you shouldn't do that. And I agree. I, I think that jQuery is something that probably we should avoid using now. But I don't want to ever, you know, give the impression that it was not amazing. Right. jQuery was the greatest thing mm -hmm. ever. Um, but it really was the browser standards showing up and, and the, the browser the browsers really being standardized and I say I eight and above when things started to get serious from in the Microsoft world about own honoring standards. So it really was it wasn't for me until um, twenty twelve, I think, when I when I took a job and started doing front end development. We were doing knockout. Mm -hmm in those days. So that was the first time I experienced really doing front-end app development. And it was really an eye-opener for me because it was it was pretty cool because I was used to working in on the server side in um, largely a stateless world because I'd actually kind of got away from web forms a little bit before that and web forms sort of pretended to have state, had the view state, and so it was kind of a stateful thing and had all these crazy events that made no sense. Um, but I had kind of switched over to an MVC world where it was largely stateless. And then suddenly I was working 
in the client where it was like a like a desktop app or some Windows app or something that was just there and you could do whatever, you know, you could actually remember things, <laughs> right? Um, I thought that was pretty cool. And then we we quickly and that team moved to AngularJS, uh, which, I, which we used for quite a while. Uh, and then I got into management and did some, some made some mistakes. Um, <laughs> And then I left and went into a, that team I mentioned earlier where I was sort of doing React. So I I joined uh, that team as probably the person who knew the front end the best, but I'd never done React, and I had been doing like dated Angular by that point. Um, but it still, I, w- I, I didn't really know it well, but I knew it the best, I would think, of, of the group. So I sort of was doing a lot of front end work there. Um, and then, you know, now I'm, I'm teaching. I'm teaching in a place where we... We teach React largely. Mm. So my, my professional experience is really minimal, really, as far as like apps that I put into production, um, Knockout, Angular, JS, and React. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I like to play with tools. I played with Svelte a little bit. I played with Vue a little bit. Uh, interestingly, and kind of strangely, now that I think about it, I've not actually played with Angular after Angular JS. Mm. I guess I... I, I would, there was a, quite a while, to me, quite a while to warm up to, to TypeScript, I guess. And so, yeah. you know, maybe we can have a whole other conversation about that. But I have warmed up to TypeScript. I think it's okay now. But, uh, <laughs> it took me a little while. Well, they say there's never a better time to start Angular than right now. It's uh, it's about to hit the, the curve, you know. Get on, buy shares now. Yeah. That's uh, I'm looking at this state of JS. <laughs> Don't believe again. it. That's written by React. <laughs> React developers maintain that. Um, it actually does say that like Angular is the second most used. It's just not. It's like the eighth most uh, desired or something huh, like that. Interesting. So you know, it's still it's still productive. Yeah, it's still productive. Yeah, I think you and I had a similar kind of web or front end journeys, however you want to say it. Because Knockout was the first one I used. I think that was the first one that really kind of came out that I was really aware of and that was also like magic like just like jQuery was like magic I think Knockout was incredible Um, and it was one of the first ones that I really remember having good documentation Um, man I'd forgot about that you're right the Knockout documentation was amazing yeah a lot of these other things were put together by people and they just like would like I kind of remember that about Backbone a little bit at least at first um, was just like, how do I use this thing? You say I have all these kind of capabilities, but um, you haven't shown me how to actually use it. But yeah, Knockout was nice. It even had a very well-designed site. I mean, it just looked pretty, uh, that kind of like orange, yellow, red theme, if I remember right. Um, so Knockout was great, and then Angular came along, and I think I, I liked it a little bit more. I don't know why I really kind of switched, but... Yeah, I guess I've been an Angular developer for at least since 2012 is when I really remember, maybe even 2011. Um, I remember definitely version 0.34, something like that. I'll have to go back and see when that was out. Uh, but anyway, yeah, similar similar kind of journey on the web. Um, and I think you're right. Like there, There is something going on right now. It's like we're things have things have stabilized over the last couple of years and now it feels like the the community is ready for for a shakeup yeah i don't i don't know what that is exactly but maybe that's 
you know, maybe it's just cultural. There, there doesn't necessarily have to be a technology driver. Right. That. No, I think it is cultural. It's like people can't stand to be <laughs> this stable or whatever. So they feel like they have to introduce something or, you know, maybe that's just the, the way the cycle goes. And, you know, back to those dark matter developers, that's an argument I've heard from a lot of people in that space that, you know, they, what their technology works and it's getting the job done and it's doing the thing and they don't actually want the new shiny mm-hmm. thing, you know? And I think there's, that's a legitimate position to have. Yeah. I, I feel like as I mature as a developer, that's a position that I want to take more. I have a lot more respect for, for that. It's like saying, no, I, I'm going to stay with the mature technology. I know works. I have a handle on it. I know who, who I know kind of the culture of the people that are putting it out. I know I can trust them on the long term. Um, I don't need to go after the new shiny thing just to get that extra capability. I can already do that in my stack. Um, so I have a lot more respect for that attitude than I used to. Um, yeah. Well, I got some good news for you. <laughs> What's that? You can write COBOL in VS Code. <laughs> yeah, as soon as this is over, I'm going to start that Pluralsight course and maybe change my life. There you go. All right, my friend. Well, I guess we'll leave it there for now, and we'll pick up uh, next time. That sounds good. All right. See you later. See you.